All right. One of my favorite passages, one that I find one of the most inspiring passages in the New Testament is part of our focus this morning from Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. Luke is writing, and he's writing a history of what happened after Jesus ascended back to the heavens, what happened to those early disciples, and we find one of those descriptions that he writes of the church in Jerusalem, the very first church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I wonder if you would read this next verse with me, Matthew 5, 14. Jesus is speaking. This is from the Sermon on the Mount. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for giving us the opportunity to gather here together today to praise your name, to look into your word contemplate how you are instructing us and uh, how you want us to operate as a, a fellowship of people here in this area. Thank you for each person in the room. You know, the challenges that we have faced this past week, whether we feel beat up by the world or whether we conquered this week. You know the needs of our families. Some of them are filled with answered prayers and some of those thoughts that we have about family are anxious, and we pray that you will continue to help to provide answers, to provide direction. We think of uh, some of the members of our family that we'd long to see come to know you or to return to the fold who've decided to, to walk on the wild side for a bit. And we ask that even as you brought the, the prodigal son to a different perspective, that you would yet, through your spirit, through other people that you put in their paths, uh, bring some of those back, back into your grace, back into wherever you are leading them, even if not here to this particular fellowship. God, we ask that you grant us wisdom for the decisions that we have to make this week, courage to live out the kind of lives you want us to live insight to understand the passages we're looking at this morning, but also how to apply them to our lives. We pray particularly for Sharon McClary, who lost her dad a week ago, and we ask that you would continue to strengthen her and, and help her to, to heal and to begin to move forward. Thank you for the way that you walk us through a number of difficult passages in life. We are grateful for the way you comfort us, the way you embolden us, and the way that you give us strength. So we pray all these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. <clears throat> Interesting that as we were interviewing Derek and the other guys from the Guywire team, that he talked about the fires out at Yosemite. It seems that every summer we hear more and more stories about wildfires that are burning out of control and consuming acres of forests 
and even homes in states from Colorado to California. We tend to think of these forest fires only in negative terms, but the U.S. Forest Service describes them this way, wildland fire can be friend or foe. A Forest Service representative explained it this way, quote, in the right place at the right time, wildland fire can create many environmental benefits, such as reducing grass, brush, and trees that can fuel large and severe wildfires and improve wildlife habitat. And of course, in the wrong place and at the wrong time, wildfires can threaten lives, homes, and natural resources." Unquote. As sensational as this year's U.S. wildfire reports have been, with more than four million acres affected, the United States National Interagency Fire Center actually reported that this year's combination of fires was about 10% higher than the annual average and nowhere near the record 10 million acres that burned in 2015. And the National Park Service adds this important factor. The vast majority of fires are caused not by lightning, not by natural events, but by human error or vandalism. As much as 90% are the result of things like campfires left untended, the burning of debris, or negligently discarded cigarettes or arson. Here's the point that I want to drive home on all this today. Whether friend or foe, this, this idea of wildfires, they start small, and the right combination of factors or an alignment of factors can blow them into a blaze that spreads quickly and widely. This morning, we are going to continue with our Living the Gospel series, and I want to focus on several factors that caused the early Christian movement to grow from a handful of scared disciples to become a gospel movement that spread from city to city like a wildfire and from continent to continent across the world. The key word that we're looking at for today is witness. But our witness to the world always comes in relationship to the concept that we talked about last Sunday, which is community. And so there are some questions that rise as we're beginning uh, this particular focus this morning. What causes a Christian community to spread like a wildfire? What caused the early church community to spread like a wildfire? And which factors need to be in alignment for any of this to happen again in our day? Here's the big idea that we're going to chase this morning. When Christians are ignited by their contact with Christ, faith spreads like wildfire in every generation. I'd like to talk for a few minutes about uh, seven factors uh, that are related to becoming aligned for impact as a church. These come from the two passages that we've read already from Acts chapter 2 and from Matthew 5.14 where Jesus says that the church is designed to be a city on a hill. So here's the first one. We must clarify our vision of who we are. Jesus speaks these memorable words in Matthew chapter 5. In the early part of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill or a town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Jesus, here for the very first time, was describing the people of God as a city on a hill. Even though that has been quoted by politicians through the years, 
and by leaders all the way back to the founding of Boston in 1630. Jesus was the originator of that phrase, and the city on the hill was not just a secular city. It was not uh, a nation among all the nations. Uh, it, it wasn't uh, a party. It's actually the, the people of God. The church is designed to be a city on a hill. With this image, Jesus gives a clear vision for operating as a faith community in every age. And the point that he's driving home is unmistakable. A city on a hill is lit up and attractive in the darkness of night. It's a simple point that if the church is simply the church operating the way we're supposed to be, the church becomes something that is visible to everybody else and shines light that, that draws people to it. Some of you are tracking with this particular series of messages through your small group. And in those small groups, we're working our way through Tim Keller's book that is called Gospel and Life. And in that book this week, he explains that Jesus gives us a communal command. Actually, there are a series of communal commands that he gives. It starts with Acts 1.8, the final uh, words of Jesus to his disciples before he ascends. And he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. He's not saying this is a, a conditional thing. Maybe if you think about it, you guys can have this role. You can be my witness, witnesses. No, he says, this is part of who you are. This is what you're going to do. This is the mission of the church. And they began to follow on those instructions. This kind of imagery continues with what Paul wrote in Romans 12.1, where he says, I urge you to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Most of the time when we read that passage, we internalize it, we imply it to ourselves as individuals, but it's interesting that he uses the word bodies, plural concept there. I don't know about you, but I only have one. I'm stuck with this one. I might like to have the one I had at 22, but I've got this one, and you've got yours. You can only give one body. So if he's giving a command to sacrifice your bodies, to offer your bodies to God as holy and acceptable to Him as a living sacrifice, He's talking to a whole group of us and saying this is part of our mission as the church, to keep offering our bodies, our lives, our whole selves together for the purpose of what God is doing in the world. That's the second of these communal commands. And these communal commands illustrate Jesus' description in Matthew 5, 14, you are a city on a hill. You and I cannot be a city alone. In order to be a city on a hill, we have to be together. We have to have a collective identity. We have to be working toward goals together. So Keller points out that the Christian community of faith exists as an alternate city. And so in our groups, if, if you're in one of those gospel and life groups, uh, there are three concepts of this alternate city that it begins to expand. I'm just going to tip us off to a little bit of that because some of us are going to be, to be discussing that during the week. The first statement he makes is that an alternate city is gospel-speaking. In other words, a city on a hill is a gospel-speaking city. Peter tells us in, in his little letter, 1 Peter chapter 3, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. 
He doesn't tell us that we have to answer every single question that people can possibly come up with, and you need to master all theology and apologetics and be prepared for every person who comes down the, the, the pike with all the questions that they could possibly come up with. No, no, no. He says there's one thing that we all must be responsible for, the reason for the hope that you have in Christ. And we're capable of doing that. But then he says, even in doing that, recognize other people who are outside of the Christian community have their own theories and their own thoughts. So when you introduce the reason for your hope, do this with gentleness and respect. Realizing we're not going to win by argument. We're not going to win by shoving things at people. We win over hearts and minds as people see us being attractive, being the kind of people who are transformed by Jesus. An alternative city is also neighbor-loving in character. The great commandment from Jesus tells us to love God and to love your neighbor and go so far as to love your neighbor as yourself. And an alternate city is community-transformed. So we just saw in Romans chapter 12, Paul tells us to offer our bodies. And as we offer our bodies to the Lord, the process of transformation and the renewing of the mind comes. But it takes a group of people to do that. So the first challenge in becoming aligned for impact is to clarify our vision for who we are. Now that's one of the reasons why we have worked in the last year to clarify our vision from time to time as a church and to, to, to get that out in front of you as a congregation. It's, it's why it's on the front of your bulletin this morning that we are people being forever changed by God's love and daily changing the South Shore and beyond for Jesus. That we are meant not just to be a group of people who gather here and feel good within these walls, but to throw ourselves into what God is doing because He wants us to be a distinct group of people, not only for ourselves, but also for those who are yet to find Jesus. And there are roles that He has in serving Him and in serving others that are yet to play out. Here's the second factor in becoming aligned for impact. Develop a hunger for God's Word. We jump to that passage from Acts chapter 2, and the opening statement tells us they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The first thing that Luke describes about this church in Jerusalem in the book of Acts is their devotion to teaching. They were initially taught by the, the apostles who had spent three years walking around and learning from Jesus. That is both wonderful and scary at the same time. Wonderful because they had experienced that direct link to Jesus. So learning from them ties us into what they learned from Jesus and what they experienced with Jesus. They'd learned from Jesus and they were trained and commissioned by Jesus to lead and teach. But this is also scary because these same apostles had been clueless and unfaithful just a few weeks earlier. In fact, they ran when Jesus was at his greatest point of crisis. So, we're learning from flawed people. And the disciples are flawed people. But I find that encouraging, because I am too. And therefore, the, the expectation isn't that we will get every moment of this perfectly, but they will, we keep growing, and we will keep on pressing into the leading of God and the way that he directs and shapes us along the way. What is apostolic teaching? Apostolic teaching is always centered on Jesus Christ and explains what the Bible originally meant as opposed to trying to make the Bible say what we want it to say. 
So the early disciples focused on Jesus' life and his identity. They showed how Jesus' ministry was predicted and supported in the Old Testament. And these strains, these themes, continually show up in the letters that they wrote that are part of our New Testament. They frequently repeated what they had witnessed regarding his death and his resurrection, which became the central feature of their celebration and their teaching. The starting point for us today is developing a hunger for God's Word. Do you have that hunger? Do I have that hunger? How do we recapture that hunger when it grows cold from time to time or when our habits need to be renewed and restored? It begins with the teaching focus that we have here on Sundays. Are we teaching truth? Are we bringing people to Jesus? But what we supply here on Sunday mornings in a message that's perhaps somewhere between 30 and 35 minutes every week isn't enough to sustain you. All this presupposes that we will be reading God's Word on our own and that, that we will continue to, to pick it over and to tear it apart and to memorize parts of it and to think about it during the day. And we all need the discipline that comes from studying the Scriptures in groups as well. One of the many reasons why we break down into our small groups is because of the encouragement factor that comes when we do this together. Here's the third factor. Contribute to creating dynamic fellowship. And so this 42nd verse of Acts 2, if we tease it out a little bit further, says they devoted themselves not only to the apostles' teaching, but also to the fellowship. The second commitment that Luke describes is, is their devotion to the community that they'd become, to the fellowship. Fellowship is the shared life, the, the shared friendship, the shared ministry of the church body. In other words, he's saying that teaching alone could not account for the explosiveness of the early church. Fellowship that enfolds and makes room for others was always an essential element, and it was one of the most attractive features of that earliest church. Fellowship is indispensable today as well. Many church folks evaluate the teaching and the worship ministry of a church first when they're trying to figure out, is this a place where I can belong and where I can fit? But they often do not stay long if they fail to connect with the church as a fellowship. It's why that you and I always need to be cognizant and have our radar up for people who are brand new who are walking in because there, there's a set of questions that people come in with when, when they're brand new. And some of those questions that they are consciously or unconsciously thinking through every Sunday are these. Do I fit here? Am I sincerely welcomed? Or was that just a formality? Did somebody just give me the, the, you know, the bare bones of a professional kind of welcome? Is this a church where people hang around and get to know each other? Or are they out of here as soon as it's over because they can't wait to leave? A dynamic fellowship includes both extroverts and introverts. Friendship and inclusion comes more easily, obviously, for, for outgoing people. But it's interesting to see the way that people who are more introverted find ways to participate and ways to find smaller gatherings of people with whom they have common interests. I find that some of the more introverted people like to serve behind the roles behind the scenes, 
Maybe they're on our kitchen team working to set up the coffee and the things that happen just as we end this time together. Or sometimes maybe they're on the chair setup team. They like coming in early to, to work on projects before everyone else arrives. Or they're focusing on welcoming one person rather than trying to meet everybody in the room at the same time. You don't have to say who you are, but I know that there are introverts who are saying, oh, it's okay, I'm glad that I can just welcome one person. I don't have to learn everybody's name, which strikes terror into your heart. But together, with our different personalities, with our different styles, we all contribute to creating a dynamic fellowship, and it's vastly important. Here's the third factor. Uh, actually, I'm up to the, what am I at? The fourth factor, sorry. Participate in the mystery of communion. We tease that out a little bit further, and it says they devoted themselves not only to the apostles' teaching, not only to the fellowship, but also to the breaking of bread. Have you ever noticed how something internally powerful seems to happen when we focus on our communion with Christ? This is that moment when we all stop to remember how Jesus died for us, how Jesus loved us, what Jesus gave up for us. And we find we're all in the same place. We all need Jesus. We all need grace. We all need to be reminded because the busyness of our world makes us think that everything revolves around me or everything revolves around you. And when we stop to focus on Jesus, he recalibrates our thinking and we realize that he's changed everything in our outlook. We renew our covenant with God that was sealed in the body of Christ and sealed by his blood. Our covenant is both individual and corporate at the same time. It has both dimensions. On the one hand, we, we silently connect with God and we, we renew our promises to him and our covenant with him. And, on the other hand, we do this together, which creates a bond between us all. It's as if we were saying every time we have communion, like we did last Sunday, oh, you too. If it wasn't for Jesus, if it wasn't for the cross, you would be out there on your own. You would be lost and confused. You would not know the grace of God. That's why we are told to do this together. It humbles us. It reminds us that apart from his shed blood and his broken body, we would all be alienated from God. And because of who Jesus is, because of what he's done, we are no longer alienated with God, that we are brought together as a fellowship. And we not only belong to each other, we belong to everybody else who's truly connected with Christ in this world, both now and in the past and in the future. And the Bible tells us that one day, Jesus said the next time he will partake of the wine and of the bread is when we're all together with him in the new and final kingdom that comes, whatever that's like. Can you imagine what a celebration that's going to be? I enjoyed looking at some of the pictures that we had from the, the big event in September. And uh, it was fun to see the, the one big picture of a whole bunch of us out front. And, and, and there's a joy. There was a shout that came. And part of that shout probably was for seeing Dennis up on the roof. I know that. And part of that was for seeing the whole crowd together. But can you imagine what it's going to be like 
when we're a part of this amazing international multi-ethnic gathering of millions and millions of people who all love Jesus, who've all gone through the same kinds of experiences that we've gone through, and we get to share the unveiling of the glory of Christ, which is recognized throughout the world by everyone at one time. It's expressed in the Bible this way, that every knee will bow before him. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. I've been in large gatherings of people who are singing praises. I've never been in anything like what is yet to come. Have you? I don't think so. We, we can barely imagine how wonderful that will be. Communion gives us a picture of that because we tap into something that every group of Christians going all the way back to the Last Supper has valued, despite all the different styles of how communion is celebrated. It ties us, it links us, it bonds us experientially to each other. Last Sunday, we had the opportunity to experience this together. We celebrate communion in the, in the way that we do that both gives us time for individual quiet reflection, but also that brings us together to make statements together. Sometimes, I see changes in people as a result of communion, as a result of, of sharing those times together because there's a humbling of the spirit. There are very few things that I see that instantaneously change the spirit of a person. But the two that I see most regularly are communion and prayer, which is the next thought of, of where we're going. So the, the fifth factor is to bathe everything in prayer. Everything that we do in the life of the church needs to be bathed in prayer. Verse 42 again, we finish it out. It says they devoted themselves also to the breaking of the bread and to prayer. If you read the rest of the paragraph, it says that they prayed in the temple courts, they prayed in their homes, they prayed wherever they went. There are four primary facets of prayer as we experience it, as we practice it, as we celebrate it. The first is corporate prayer, where we participate together in large gatherings like this one. And there's corporate prayer that happens sometimes when we all read a, a written prayer and we speak the words out loud. Sometimes as one person leads, like I did a few moments ago, but you're praying along with that. A couple of Monday nights ago, we had a corporate prayer gathering here, and there were about some 40 to 50 people that spent a little more than an hour together. And it was a wonderful time. And we're going to try and do that quarterly just to create a larger gathering where we just pray. The second primary facet of prayer is, is group prayer that can take place over a meal, over a meeting, or in a Bible study. Uh, some of you meet in groups of people regularly that, that pray together. Well, one of the things that I've put into my life as a discipline over the last several years, I meet with a handful of pastors every other Tuesday. And one of the things that it does is it forces us to pray together, not just for ourselves, not just for our own church, but for all the churches in this area, or all the churches at least that we represent. And I find that is healthy for me, to be able to pray with other people. We pray as a staff group every week. And we don't just pray for our own needs, we pray for the church at large, we pray for different ministry teams. We pray for God's leading for us as a church as a whole. So there's corporate prayer, there's group prayer, there's family prayer that needs to be nurtured 
not forced. Every so often, I'm meeting with a young couple that uh, is preparing for uh, marriage. And in those four preparation times that we have together, one of the things that often gets exposed is what kind of prayer habits they have. I take them through a questionnaire that asks a whole bunch of questions like that, and there it is in black and white. And frequently, a young couple will, will uh, fill in a little box that says, prayer is an untapped resource in our lives, rather than prayer is a major function that we already have in place. I said, that's really good. Thank you for an- answering honestly. But if it's an untapped resource, you know what you have to do next? Tap it. That's what God wants us to do, is tap that resource. And it can start in really simple ways. So I give out assignments. So I want, I want to hear back from you, but next time you have a meal together, it's just the two of you. What if one of you leads out in a prayer and you just thank God for some of the answers to prayer that he's already given in your life? It's great when we do that. That reminds me, I'm going to thank God today. I get to take off this bracelet I've been wearing for two years. This thing says... Uh, Imprisoned with them. I've been praying for Andrew Brunson for two years. And the reason I've been wearing this isn't to make a show. It's because it reminded me every day. It's right there on my wrist. And I've been praying for this guy that that he would be released and that, that he would be set free. And it was so wonderful just to see the reactions of that family as they finally set foot on, on American soil. There was a picture that I saw. I, I wasn't able to copy it. I should have. I, I, it would have been great just to show up here. But it was a picture of uh, Pastor Brunson when he first arrived in Germany and a U.S. ambassador met him there. And he handed him the American flag, folded up in a, in a little trifle. The first thing he did was he kissed it. You know, saying, I, I realize how wonderful the values are in, in our country. It's not perfect, but... A whole lot better than a place like Turkey where they throw you into prison for being an outspoken Christian or an American where you're a target. Bathe everything in prayer. And and the last is individual prayer that enriches your personal relationship with the Lord. A number of times we've had my friend Danny Kroos, who's a part of my pastor's prayer gathering. Danny's the chaplain at at the uh, Plymouth Correctional Facility. And I remember uh, one time when he spoke here, he talked about the mandate that he gives to new believers in prison. Some of you know where I'm going with this. Bible before breakfast. That's the rule that he teaches them. And he was trying to teach that to all of us, that you want to start a really rich habit that that actually is uh, applicable, applicable to life? Try this one. Bible before breakfast. Let that hunger kind of drive you and remind you of what's missing in your life. Now, there there are three ways that you can help North River catch fire in this area. One is to make sure that prayer is a regular component of every group or every ministry meeting that you are in. So if you're one of the leaders or co-leaders of that group, I'm going to throw that responsibility out to you. You have absolute freedom to dictate how much prayer will be a part of your gathering. And I would challenge you to saturate it with prayer rather than just have a perfunctory prayer at the beginning saying, God, show up. No, 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 no. Pray over the decisions. Pray over the challenges. Pray over the problems. Pray over the solutions. Pray most of all over the people who are part of the group or the focus of that ministry. Invite your group to talk with God together. Yeah, I know some people are going to be uncomfortable at first, 
But once you get them started, it gets a little bit easier. Second, if you're in a family, figure out how to lead in appropriate ways. Mealtimes are one of the simplest ways to do that. And then add a little more. Some other time when maybe you, you pray as a gathering. My dad used to take advantage of that when we would go on family vacations. It wasn't that often, but it was at least once a year. And we would start off the family vacation, he'd turn off the, ra- or vacation, he'd turn off the radio, and we would pray in the car. Not just about the trip, but we'd pray about our family, we'd pray about direction. And it was one of those little things that he built into us very early on. What will your family tradition be? What's a new one that you can start? And the third way is by making a prayer a part of your daily routine. Somewhere, some way, where does it fit in? I really don't care if you're a morning person or an evening person. I tend to be more of an evening person. I pray at night when everything's quiet. Here's the sixth factor. Take action. Look at verse 44 and verse 45. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and good, they gave to anyone as he had need. Again, Luke describes the continual and voluntary acts of this on-fire fellowship. They adopted a changed attitude about their possessions. They saw everything they had in connection with their shared life in Christ. Those who had a little more found themselves from time to time reducing their lifestyles in order to meet the needs of somebody else who was on the hurting end of things. And it just happened. They didn't wait to vote as a congregation. They didn't wait until there was some massive leadership function that that dictated how all that would happen. It just rolled out naturally. And that was one of the keys to the dynamic aspect of their fellowship. At North River, some of these needs are met quietly behind the scenes by our deacons team. They do a, a fantastic job of meeting needs once they hear about them. But some of these needs are met quietly behind the scenes by others, by small groups, by ministry teams, by a group of friends who just realize, you know what, there's somebody that we know in our town, in our study group that needs help. Let's, let's respond. And I always get this really warm sense of, of a thrill when I hear about something that wasn't organized from the top down, where we're meeting needs within the church family. It just happens. Every time the Lord moves us to respond to a need, He is teaching and He is preparing us for something even greater that He has in mind down the road. And then there's one more. Prioritize both large and small gatherings. So the paragraph ends up with this verse. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. What that verse is describing are a series of gatherings. Some of them are large corporate gatherings where they gathered for teaching and for prayer and for worship. Some of them are home-based gatherings. But they continually met for worship in both of these contexts. Here's an amazing discovery. The Christian church got its start at Jerusalem's temple. And originally, the Christian movement was a subset of the worship that was already going on in the the temple, the Jewish temple of Jerusalem. This was the church service of the earliest church gatherings. 
You and I are here today, and I want to commend you that. This isn't a temple. Uh, we, are, we are a church. This is our facility. This is our building. And you gather here regularly. But I've noticed some things over the years that people gather with different kinds of frequency. On the one hand, I want to commend everybody here for just being here today. I'm thrilled that you're here. But I'd also like to send out a challenge. It seems that people who used to be four times a month people are now threes or twos. People who are three times a month folks in terms of their participation in the larger gathering are often twos or a one time a month. And here's the challenge. If you're a once a month attender, what would it take for you to build into your calendar, into your monthly discipline to make that twice a month? If you're a twice a month attender, what would it take and what impact would it have if you started showing up three times a month? If you're here three Sundays a month, fantastic. What would it take for you to be here just about every Sunday? And what is it that is so important that it takes a higher priority? Just wondering, are we following the trend of the nation that says, Sunday morning is no longer important? Or are we following the pattern that we see marked out for us by the early church? I think you get the point. The point isn't a guilt trip. The point is, how do we inspire each other to make this even more infectious? If North River is your church family, you are missing out on a huge part of our life together. If you're not regularly meeting in a small group for Bible study, prayer, and fellowship, this isn't a guilt trip. This is an opportunity. I've led or attended a small group gathering every year now for 40 years since I was a sophomore in college. I've been a part of some kind of a small group. I got invited by, invited by a friend when I was a sophomore in college to uh, get up early uh, one morning a week. We got up at 5 o'clock in the morning to meet for a 6 o'clock uh, preschool uh, gathering in a, in a home with ninth and 10th grade boys who are all athletes. And we had to go get the donuts and bring the coffee, and this lady opened up her living room, and we had a group of about 10 ninth grade boys with a couple 10th grade boys sprinkled into that. And that habit of being a part of a small group and seeing what God could do in that small context became something that I could never get away from. One of the things I love about being a part of a small group isn't teaching it. It isn't necessarily leading it. That's fun, too. It's seeing what happens with individuals within the group when they start to figure things out that they didn't understand before, when they start to grow that passion for seeing Jesus at work in their lives, when they start to finally take the risk of awkwardly praying in the midst of a group for the first time, and then when God answers a prayer and there's the celebration that happens afterward. I've got news for you. I am addicted to small groups because this is the microcosm where God does his best work. That is why I passionately want everybody who's a part of North River to be a part of a regular small group fellowship. If you're not, you're missing out on something dynamic and you're on your own and it's much, much harder for your faith to expand, to grow, to become richer if you're doing it all by yourself. It's just harder. So, 
Here's the big idea that we've been tracking. When Christians are ignited by their contact with Christ, faith spreads like wildfire. And this is possible in every generation. Three payoffs that come from the, the verses that uh, are on the back page. Joy, favor, and growth. Acts 4.4 4 says, but many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. That's not even counting the women and children. And then in chapter 6, we find, so the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. That means Jewish priests who are now becoming Christians because they were seeing the attractiveness of the local church when it catches like a wildfire. North River, I have one prayer today. This is my closing prayer. Lord, turn us into a wildfire. Amen? Amen. All right. Let me call for our ushers to come and we'll receive our offering. And uh, we've got one final song that uh, Pat and the team are going to lead us in this morning. Uh, Great are you, Lord.